Well, good morning. Well, we are walking through the story of Jesus, and we're doing it through cultural and historical implications. And last week, we talked about um, Jesus being born in a house, and we went over some diagrams of the structures of homes in Bethlehem. And if you missed that Sunday, go back and um, watch it, because we kind of just talked about, like, things that we added to the Christmas story from like famous novels, but not necessarily from the Bible itself. And so it was fun. And this Sunday, we are talking about a part of the Christmas story that is not displayed in Christmas programs. There are no Christmas pageants that include this part of the story. Uh, We don't sing about it in any of our carols. And if we've heard about it, we've probably heard about it in passing while reading scripture. Um, And if you're wondering by now if it's actually a part of the Christmas story, it is. Um, It's the unfortunate story of Herod. Because often the last thing that we want to do is take a story of terrible massacre and talk about it during the celebration of Christmas season, the joy of Jesus' birth. And in this season, we tend to focus on the exciting, wonderful things that we can sing about, and nobody sings about Herod for a reason. But I want to dive into it today, because I think it helps us see the deep redemption that Jesus was both born for and died for. And so today we're going to get a little bit heavy in the middle of the joy of this season. But stick with me here. Matthew 2, 13 through 18. It says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This story really begs the question, why did Matthew include it in the retelling of the Jesus story? And why did it happen in the first place? And part of understanding why it happened has to come with understanding who is Herod. And this is an important piece of the kind of cultural context of this story. Herod was an incredibly complex person. An incredibly complex person. And an equally complex ruler. He was racially an Arab, but he had a Greek name. He was religiously Jewish. And if being more complicated than an Arab with a Greek name who followed the religious traditions of the Jewish, he was also someone who followed the cultural lifestyle of the Greek, and he was politically Roman. So this guy, Herod, is so incredibly complicated. 
in every way, his lifestyle, his ethnicity, his religious traditions, his name, none of it matched and none of it made sense. And he was described as a good-looking, powerful ruler who at the height of his reign had a really secure throne, really unthreatened throne. And he would go out and battle with his armies. And over time, as a person, he began to disintegrate. He kind of began to fall apart. He ended up getting married to 10 women, and some of the sons that he had during that time, he worried would be able to overthrow his throne, and he got insecure, and so he began to kill his own sons so that there wasn't any possibility that they could take over his throne. And at one point, he became so concerned that his wife might try to overtake his throne or wouldn't back him politically in a situation that he also had her killed. He was brutal and he acted really, really fast. And towards the end of his life, he got really, really sick. He had several really terrible diseases. But he was still in the middle of it, wreaking all sorts of havoc. And near the end of his life, it says that he arrested the prince, the prince that would be the one to assume his throne in the future. So it makes sense that near the end of his life, he arrests the prince and he imprisons him and he keeps him there. And during the time that the prince is imprisoned and has been arrested, Herod became so beaten down by his diseases that he tried to kill himself. So then, in this moment, the prince gets out of prison, and everybody's in a situation where they're going, okay, we have a new ruler, we've got a new era, we've got something way better ahead of us. Herod has killed himself, and now the prince is out of prison, and the prince is going to reign, and the prince will not be the type of ruler that Herod is. But all while this is happening, Herod had actually botched his attempt to kill himself, and he was healing. So then he gets the prince and he kills the prince. And then five days later, Herod died of his diseases and wounds from having tried to kill himself. It was an incredibly chaotic, incredibly wild, super intense, very violent, very brutal, and very confusing two weeks. However, this posed one piece of information for Herod. He had gotten a taste of how people would respond to his death. He had realized in his attempt to kill himself and not having done it successfully, when he came back to and realized that everybody was excited and they were happy and they were so thrilled that Herod would be gone because he had ruled so violently and so brutally and it was so incredibly awful having him on the throne that he realized there would not be mourning when he died. And this mattered to Herod. And so in the five days between when he tried to kill himself and when he actually died, he set out to demand as many mass murders as possible so that if they did not mourn him, 
there would still be mourning. Because if they weren't going to mourn his death, they needed to mourn over something. And into an incredibly brutal world, Jesus was born. And into this incredibly brutal world, Jesus' birth brought hope. And a lot of times today, people feel like it's so much worse and that we're getting closer and closer to how everything is just so incredibly terrible. And I think if we pay attention to scripture, we'll realize that people have been messy since the garden. And the birth of Jesus is often retold with celebrations and and music and carols and things you can sing about, not the Herod story, and things that you can enjoy and just be incredibly happy around. And a very forgotten piece of this story is this ruler who is incredibly brutal and incredibly violent. So why does Matthew choose to include this part of the story? I mean, no one else felt like ruining Christmas quite like Matthew did. (laughs) But he had to have a reason. Kenneth Bailey tells us a few things about his reasons for including it. The oft-observed reason is that Matthew is presenting Jesus as a new Moses. And Moses was born in the midst of an occasion of the slaughter of the innocent. As Pharaoh at that time had ordered the killing of all male Hebrew babies. And there's a parallel in this story. But another reason that is talked about is that those living in the Middle East, there were recounts at this time of constant warfare. And in just 35 years, there were seven brutal wars. There was a great and very intense reason to believe that their hope and potentially only hope lied in the birth of Jesus. A Jesus who was born, who would later die on a cross in an also brutal way, but for the redemption of each of us. Retaining faith in in Jesus while there was unrest, warfare, massacre through 35 years of war wasn't an easy task. And remembering the Christmas story and the cross brought great hope. That Jesus knew what he was coming to redeem and that they were not alone in the chaos and the confusion and all of the violence and brutality. And that same message of justice in the midst of an unjust, warfare-filled, unnecessary death is the same message that the birth of Jesus brings into our world today. And Matthew was no sugarcoater, clearly. Obviously, Matthew was not writing with a plan to gloss over anything at all. He started his gospel telling of the evil that Jesus was born into, and he ended it with the evil that Jesus died to redeem. And Matthew told every detail that he could tell, even if it was an incredibly painful detail, and maybe we wouldn't want to remember it in the first place. Kenneth Bailey says this, if the gospel can flourish in a world 
that produces the death of the innocent and the reality of the cross, then the gospel is designed to flourish anywhere and with anyone. So there's a couple of observations this morning about Matthew's account, this particular story in Jesus' birth that includes this really dark and twisted and evil and terrible part. And one is that this horrifying brutality is noted at the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. His birth and his death is relevant in a violent and very broken world. Matthew wanted people to know and see and experience and feel that Jesus was coming to set his people free. And there was great reason to believe that freedom was really, really important. There had been so much pain and so much incredible violence that the idea that Jesus was coming to set people free was so incredibly wonderful. So today I want to offer a couple of words of encouragement. And then we have some response time towards the end here. Knowing that Jesus came into a world full of injustice and he died to redeem a broken and unjust world, we need to acknowledge and know that our world today is also broken and unjust. And I don't think anybody in this room is going to, to argue with that statement and say, no, 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 it's perfect. Our world is great. There's nothing wrong with it. Like, that would be silly, and none of us would say that. But we need to know and understand that the world that Jesus came to redeem that was violent and broken and unjust is the same world that Jesus came to redeem that we experience as well. So the first thing this morning is that Jesus' birth demands a Christian who will embody a love-driven justice. You may have heard this language, love-driven justice, before because it's one of the five values of the free Methodist world. One of the five values is love-driven justice. And the word embody, to embody is to have a tangible and visible result of something. And so what this means is that we as a people of Cook's Hill, of a free Methodist church, this community, is that we are to have a tangible and visible display of love-driven justice. In our community, we should be able to point to tangible and visible ways that we are driven to be a justice-oriented community. Luke 4, 18 through 19. Worship team, you can come up now. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and has recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Love-driven justice is a justice that demands freedom for the enslaved. Love-driven justice is a justice that loves the foreigner. 
Leviticus says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Love-driven justice is a justice that defends the weak, the fatherless, and the poor. Psalms tells us this, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Love-driven justice is a justice that speaks on behalf of those being treated poorly. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Love-driven justice is a justice that defends the oppressed. Isaiah tells us this, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Love-driven justice is a merciful and compassionate commitment that we make when we sign up to follow Jesus. Zechariah tells us this, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. If we're following Jesus, and we're here in this room as a body of Christ, as followers of Jesus in the church, as a collective community who is going to embody love-driven justice, have tangible and visible ways that we can know and see justice being lived out in our community. And if we are in this space and we cannot see that in ourselves, then we need to evaluate our faith in God and repent. So the first thing is that Jesus' birth demands a Christian who will embody a love-driven justice, which our world desperately needs. As much as it needed in the reign of Herod and the intense mass massacres that were happening at the hands of an incredibly brutal and violent individual today, our world needs the justice that Jesus' birth provides. But the second thing is that Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection provides hope for each of us. You might have experienced a world that is unjust, a world that feels deeply unfair. And your personal experience in life might feel marked by hurt and pain caused by someone else. And you might go through your day understanding that there are triggers or communication things or, or behaviors that you have that are a result of the wounds caused by someone else. And there's a, a, a verse in Genesis that's sort of a, a promise that I want to give you and speak over you this morning. Genesis 41, 52. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Let me read it slightly differently. God has given me purpose in the middle of pain. So I want to speak some truths over people in this room who feel like they have been the result or the recipient of wounds caused by someone else. 
But I want to just all speak them um, together. And so if you are in a space where you have been the recipient of injustice and you feel deeply the wounds that someone else has caused you at some point in your world, I want you to feel and embrace and experience these words. They're going to be on the screen and we're going to read them together. Would you read these with me? And if you just need to hear these words, just let them be heard over you. May your enemies no longer define you. May you not be marked by the wounds of injustice. May you experience a love that's deep and decimates shame. You are a new person, a child of God. You are beautiful, whole, and restored in Christ. Jesus' birth has set you free. And although the road to healing is often long and painful, you've gained new territory and Jesus is giving you an opportunity to lean into healing and invite others to join you. May you experience a love that's deep and decimates shame. You are a new person, a child of God. You are healed to offer healing. You are made whole to usher in wholeness. You are set free by the one born to set us free so that you may become agents of freedom in an unjust world. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you meet us with your hope and your healing. And that in the midst of a world that is often violent, in the midst of a world that can be incredibly brutal, Jesus, your birth brings hope for healing. Your birth brings hope for freedom, not just for our own sins, but for the effect of the sins of others on us. Father, I pray specifically this morning for anyone here in this space who feels the effect of an unjust world, who feels the wounds of a world that is not kind, of a person who is not kind. And Father, I pray that you would usher in waves of healing, waves of hope, And that the experience of your birth would become personal. And that we would know in this place that your birth brings to each of us the incredible love and freedom that we each so desperately want.